Hello, listeners. Or, hello. <laughs> this is take two. Um, I'm Andrew. I'm Rachel. Uh, Mercury is now laying behind us because I forced him to lay behind us. He has been very distracting for the past 20 minutes or so. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the No Sleep Podcast. No, it's not. No, it's not. What is it? Armchair Apocrypha. <laughs> Armchair Apocrypha. That's right. This is the, uh, the podcast where armchair experts tell possibly true stories. Um, hopefully we can get through this take without a certain dog being distracting. Um, how was your week? It was good. It was busy, but good and relaxing today. Yeah. For the most part. Aside from the, the store texting you. Yeah. 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 Um, we saw Captain Marvel last night. Yes, it was brilliant. Brilliant. What was your favorite part, Andrew? <laughs> I really like the cat. Um, spoilers for the movie. Uh, the cat, Goose. Um, is not a cat. He's not a cat. Um, the first part, uh, the first time that he opens up his mouth and Cthulhu tentacles like spew out of his mouth was one of my favorite parts of the movie. What was your favorite part of the movie? Um, when she like fully forms into Miss or Captain Marvel. Mm-hmm. It's a really visually impressive yeah, part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, the first uh, the first ten minutes of the movie take place on like an alien um, alien planet, and it's very dark and murky, and you can't really tell what's going on. Yeah, and I was like, God, I hope the rest of the movie isn't like this. And then as soon as they get to Earth, it's more. Uh, Thor Ragnarok, more uh, colorful, mm-hmm. a little bit lighter. Um, yeah, it was nice. Yeah, I yeah. enjoyed it. Allie, uh, Allie spoiled herself a little Amy. bit. Amy. <laughs> we got this. I blame the dog. I blame the dog so much. Um, Amy spoiled herself uh, because she wanted to find out how Nick Fury lost his eye mm-hmm. and uh, what Captain Marvel's powers were. So she uh, went and read ahead. Um, but apparently she enjoyed it a lot too. She still enjoyed how he lost his eye. Yeah. I was, I was expecting it to be more dramatic than it was. Yeah, Because in too. the movie it's like two seconds long. Yeah. It doesn't really have very much like importance in the movie. Um, but yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we won at, um, trivia this week. Yes. For the first, first time, time this, this year. year. Uh, it took us three months. We finally did it Mm -hmm. uh, with 69 points. As one does. (laughs) (laughs) Shout out to Clay Baker, um, his trivia trivia Tuesdays at Mad Bar. They're good. They're good. Um, Yeah. Did we do anything else this week? I just asked you this 10 minutes ago. (laughs) I don't think we did. Okay. That was enough for one week. All right. Do you want to get into this week's episode? I do. Cool. Um... So I will be talking about an Egyptian woman, um, Huda Sharawi. Okay. Um, she was one of the first Egyptian feminists, uh, proto-feminists maybe. Um, she was born in Upper Egypt to the famous Egyptian El Sharawi family. Um, I've never heard of them before. Nope. I don't know how famous they are. But um, I'll take your word for it. I'll take Wikipedia's word for it. Um, the famous El Sharawi family. Uh, She was born into wealth. Um, She was the daughter of the uh, Muhammad Sultan, the first president of the Egyptian Representative Council. 
Um, she spent her childhood and early adulthood secluded in an upper-class Egyptian harem. Um, she en envied her brother as a child. Uh, she envied all the advantages he had because he was a male. Somehow it didn't seem fair that they should be treated so differently just mm -hmm. because of their gender. Yeah. Uh, at age 13, Huda was betrothed to her much older cousin, Ali Pasha Sharawi, as a second wife. At first, she refused to go along with the arranged marriage, but her family pressured her by insisting that the refusal would bring disgrace to her father's name and the shock might kill her mother. She's very he healthy communication with the child. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Huda relented reluctantly. Uh, the marriage was not a happy one, and Huda lived apart from her husband for several years. According to Margaret Badron, who wrote a biography of her, a subsequent separation from her husband gave her time for an extended formal education, as well as an unexpected taste of independence. She was taught to read the Quran and received tutoring by, in uh, Quranic Arabic and Islamic subjects by female teachers in Cairo. Shari, Shari, blah, Huda. Huda wrote poetry in both Arabic and French, um, and later recounted her early life in her memoir, Mudakirati, or my memoir, which was translated and abridged into the English version, Harem Years, the Memoirs of an Egyptian Feminist. She reconciled with her husband when she was 21. Uh, she then had two children with him. Okay. Between 1900 and 1910, she started organizing lectures for women on topics of interest to them. This brought many women out of their homes and into public places for the first time in Egypt. Woohoo! Sharawi convinced the royal princesses to help her establish a women's welfare society to raise money for poor women of the country. In 1909, she created the first philanthropic society run by, by Egyptian women, uh, Mabarat Muhammad Ali, uh, offering social services for poor women and children. She argued that women-run social service projects were important for two reasons. First, by engaging in such projects, women would uh, widen their horizons, acquire practical knowledge, and direct their focus outward. Second, su such projects would challenge the view that all women are creatures of pleasure and beings in need of protection. To Shaari, problems of the poor were to be resolved through charitable activities of the rich, particularly through donations to education programs. Holding a somewhat romanticized view of the poor of poor women's lives, she viewed them as passive recipients of social services, not to be consulted about priorities or goals. The rich, in turn, were the guardians and protectors of the nation. I really don't like this. <laughs> in 1910, she opened a school for girls where she focused on teaching academic subjects rather than practical skills such as midwifery. <laughs> In 1914, the year in which she first traveled to Europe for, uh, for the first time, she helped organize the Union of Educated Egyptian Women. Uh, she helped lead the first women's street demonstration during the Egyptian Revolution of 1919. Um, during this time, women were beginning to enter the Egyptian public sphere, uh, so they began to enter into the realm of politics. Uh, Wafi members, uh, wives, and other women took up the national cause and established the Waftist Woman's Central Committee. Um, I'm not going to try to pronounce that. On 12 January 1920, in a meeting at St. Mark's Cathedral. Uh, when Wafti leaders Saad Zagul uh, was deported to the Seychelles in 1921, the WWCC continued to work for the nationalist cause in his absence. They coordinated embargoes against British goods and managed uh, the financial side of the nationalist movement. 
Huda al Sharwi was elected president of the committee and other founding members, including Ulfat Artib, Regina Habib Kayat, Wisa Wasif, Ahmad Abu Uzba, Sharifa Riyad, Esther Fami Wisa, Louise Majorel Wasif Ghali, Isan al Kusi, and Fikru. Fikraya Husni. Most of these uh, women came from large landowning families, although some were middle-class Kiranids. Uh, the, w the WWCC solidified links between various women's associations in Cairo and the nationalist cause, such as the New Woman Society, uh, Jimayat al-Maria al-Jadida, founded by Sharawi in 1919, the Society of Renaissance of Egyptian Women, uh, Jamayat Nadat al-Sayadat al-Musrayat, and the Society of Mothers of the Future, Jamiat Umahat al-Mustakbal. In addition, women from the WWCC helped to found women's organizations outside Cairo in Minya, Aziat, and Tanta. Yes, so she's I'm just, familiar with those places. She's just seeding all of these organizations everywhere. Sharawi made a decision to stop wearing her veil in public after her husband's death in 1922. Returning from a trip to a women's conference in Europe in 1923, she stepped off the train and removed her veil. <gasps> Shocking, right? Women who came to greet her were shocked at first, then broke into applause. Nice. Some took off their veils, too. This was the first public defiance of the restrictive tra tradition in Egypt. That same year, Sharawi helped found the Egyptian Feminist Union, hosting meetings for women in her home. She was elected its president and held the position for 24 years. It's a long-ass time. It is a long-ass time to hold one, uh, one position. Uh, the union campaigned for various reforms to improve women's lives. Among them were raising the minimum age of marriage for girls to 16 increasing women's educational opportunities, and improving health care. Egypt's first secondary school for girls was founded in 1927 as a result of her organization. Cool. Uh, in 1924, she led Egyptian women pickets at the opening of parliament and submitted a list of nationalist and feminist demands, which were ignored by the Waftis government, whereupon she resigned from the Waftis Women Central Committee. Um, she continued to lead the Egyptian Feminist Union until her death uh, publishing the feminist magazines L'Egyptian, Le uh, later Al-Mazreya, and Al-Mara Al-Arabiya, or the Arab women. Uh, and she represented Egypt at the Women's Congress in Graz, Paris, Amsterdam, Berlin, Marseille, Istanbul, Brussels, Budapest, Copenhagen, Interlaken, and Geneva. I've heard of some of those. I have too. <laughs> Um, during her time uh, as a representative, she ad advocated peace and disarmament. In 1945, two years before her death, her lifelong activism for the rights of and independence of all Egyptians, but especially women, was acknowledged when she was awarded the Nishan Al-Kamal, Egypt's highest state decoration for services to her country. Um, a life which had been filled with activism to the very last moment ended as she died of a fatal heart attack in December of 1947, bringing to an end one of the most significant and impactful careers in feminist activism and organization building in the Middle East. Groovy. She did a lot. How did you find her? Um, I 
after the um, the terrorist attack a few days ago, mm-hmm. I was looking for a Muslim woman, and I found her on a list of uh, women who've been erased from history or women that okay. you may not have heard of. Yeah. Um, and so I was looking uh, looking for something to do on that. Yeah. All right. Well, since it's St. Patrick's Day, I went with an Irish woman. Okay. Have you ever heard of Constance Markovitz? I have heard of Constance Markovitz. I don't remember what she did. I'm going to talk to you about her for a wee bit. Please do, yeah. So she was born Constance Gorbuth, Constance Gorbuth, and then Madame Markovitz, Mm -hmm. a title she preferred to Countess, um, was not exactly predestined for a life in the trenches. I loved this one article where I got most of the information. Yeah. So she was born at Buckingham Gate in London, though, in 1868. Right. During the famine of 1879 and 1880, her father provided free food to the tenants on his estate um, in the northwest of Ireland. Um, Their father's example inspired in Constance and her younger sister, Eva, a deep concern for working people and the poor. The sisters were childhood friends of the poet W.B. Yeats, Mm -hmm. who frequently visited the family home and were influenced by his artistic and political ideas. He wrote a poem in memory of Eva Gorbuth and Con Markowitz, mm-hmm. in which he described the scissors, sisters as two girls in six silk kimonos, both beautiful, one a gazelle. Um, one a gazelle. And Constance was the gazelle. <laughs> um, so she was the daughter of well-to-do landlords. She dismayed her boudoir, I forget how you pronounce it. Boudoir? Yeah, family, through stubbornly oh. refusing to marry. Bourgeois. Bourgeois, yeah family through stubbornly refusing to marry for many years until she went to art school and there she met a penniless count Casimir Markovitz after a peculiar courtship that saw Casimir duel men who insulted her the two married (laughs) during their wedding wedding vows though she rather notably omitted the part about obeying her husband Um, the Markovitz settled in Dublin in 1903 and moved into artistic and literary circles with Constance gaining a reputation as a landscape painter. Okay. However, it was soon clear she wasn't cut out to be a wife or a mother. Constance's daughter, Maeve, as she grew up, was actually raised by her grandmother instead of Constance to herself to the point that when the two met as adults, they didn't recognize each other. Wow. Yeah. Similarly, Constance and Casimir's relationship cooled significantly in the years after the wedding. The root cause of both areas of neglect was Constance finding her one true love, her country. (laughs) So in 1907, Constance rented a college in the countryside near Dublin. Um, The previous tenant had left behind copies of The Peasant and Sin Fien. These revolutionary journals promoted independence from British rule, and Constance read these new publications and was one of the reasons she was propelled into action. I think it's Sinfine. 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 I believe it. Now, at this time, Ireland was in rough shape. Centuries Uh of war with and neglect from Britain hadn't done the nation any favors. Gee, really? Tax and rent money largely went to England and some of being invested in Ireland, thus resulting in recurrent crises of poverty, plague, and famine. Shocking. Right. Um, shoot. <laughs> the extended visit from the apocalyptic horseman quartet understandably cheesed off many of the Irish. I love how they worked this. <laughs> and they began to form secret groups devoted to self-rule. It is in these groups that content soon fell. She was not at first welcomed with open arms. Um, the Irish society, largely working class folk, eyed the smartly dressed countess with suspicion and outright antipathy. 
Antipathy. Antipathy. But I like to say antipathy. <laughs> I just see it every time in my head. You do you. Only through many years of effort did she earn their trust. She stopped standing during God Save the Queen. She started giving speeches urging outright rebellion. And she started a youth training camp that taught boys to shoot the British and that taught the shooting herself. Go her. She was actually jailed for the first time in 1911 for speaking at an Irish Republican Brotherhood demonstration intended by 30,000 people Mm -hmm. organized to protest against George V's visit to Ireland. During this protest, Constance handed out leaflets, erected great mass, Dear lands thou art not conquered yet, um, participated in stone throwing at pictures of the king and queen, and attempted to burn the giant British flag taken from a house, Hmm. eventually eventually succeeding, um, but then seeing um, one guy in prison for a month for the incident, uh, even though she was the one that said that she was the one responsible for taking the flag. Right. Um, Her friend Helena was arrested for her part in the stone throwing and became the first woman in Ireland to be tried in prison for a political act since the time of the land's late. Ladies Land League. I think she, I think she's on my list for future future oh, episodes. Cool. I think that's why I, I recognize. Yeah, the okay, name. okay. Um, Constance also joined James Connolly's Socialist Irish Citizens Army. Mm-hmm. Irish Citizen Army, a small volunteer force formed in response to the lockout of 1913 to defend the de- demonstrating workers from the police. Dublin lockout. Uh mm-hmm. huh. I've done that on that on the show before too. <laughs> Constance recruited uh, volunteers to peel potatoes in the basement while she and other workers distributed the food. As all the food was paid out of her own pocket, Constance was forced to take out many loans at this time and sold all her jewelry. That same year, um, she ran a soup kitchen to feed poor school children. Good um, for her. She soon became an icon of sorts for the women of the rebellion. When asked fashion advice, she told women to dress suitably in short skirts and strong boots, leave your jewels in the bank, and buy a revolver. In later parades, she showed up so heavily armed that the casual onlooker might be readily pardoned for mistaking her for the representative of an enterprising firm of small arms manufacturers. During one notable procession of the English king through town she waved a black flag in protest amidst a sea of the king's supporters one royal royalist showed his disapproval by hitting her on the back with his union jack flag only for the stick holding the flag to abruptly break and two across her shoulders this was to become a metaphor for her life well now we're gonna get to the easter rebellion nice in the rising um constance fought in St. Stephen's Green, where on the first morning, according to one account, she shot a member of the unarmed Dublin Metropolitan Police, um, who subsequently died of his injuries. District Nurse Geraldine recorded in her diary that she was returning from duty to the nurse's home located southwest when she saw, and quote, a lady in green uniform, the same as the men were wearing. The feathers were the only feminine feature in her parents, holding a revolver in one hand and a cigarette in the other, was standing on the footpath giving orders to the men. You recognize her as the Countess de Markovitz, such a specimen of womanhood. <laughs> there were other women similar, similarly attired inside the park, walking about and bringing drinks of water to the men. We had only been looking out a few minutes when we saw a policeman walking down the path from the Harcourt Street. He had only gone a short way when we heard a shot and then saw him fall forward on his face. 
the countess ran triumphantly into the green saying, I got him. And some of the rebels shook her by the hand and seemed to congratulate her. Other counts placed her at City Hall when the policeman was shot, only arriving at Stephen Green's later. So, hashtag armchair apocrypha. Armchair apocrypha. Um, Constance supervised the setting up of the barricades on Easter Monday and was in the middle of the fighting all around Stephen's Green, wounding a British Army sniper. Trenches were dug in the green, sheltered by the front gate. However, after British machine gun and rifle fire from the rooftops of tall buildings on the north side of the green, including um, a hotel, excuse me, the citizens' army troops withdrew, withdrew to the Royal College of Surgeons on the west side of the green. It's like literally a little mini army <laughs> battlefield. Um, the Stephen Green's garrison held out for six days ending the engagement when the British brought them a copy of Pierce's surrender order. The British officer captain, um, Major de Courcy Wheeler, who accepted the surrender, was married to Constance's first cousin. So the Easter Rebellion was actually genuinely shocking. The core of Dublin essentially turned into a battlefield. Overturned cars made from makeshift barricades, barricades. British artillery shells rained down on city buildings and dead soldiers laid unattended in city parks. During the early rebellion, Constance was everywhere, nursing, sewing a rebel, a rebel flag, and delivering messages as one of the highest-ranking members of the rebellion. Soon into the conflict, she settled into her role as a sniper. Holed up at the College of Royal Surgeons, she spent the majority of the Easter rebellion on the rooftop shooting at royal, royalist... Mm-hmm at the nearby hotel. So, they were taken to the Dublin Castle and Constance was transported uh, to a place I cannot pronounce. They were jeered by the crowds as they walked through the streets of Dublin. There she was one of 70 women prisoners who was put into solitary confinement. At her court martial on May 4th, 1916, Constance pleaded not guilty to taking part in an armed rebellion for the purpose of assisting the enemy, but pleaded guilty to having attempted to cause disaffection among the civil population of His Majesty. Hmm. Constance told the court, I went out to fight for Ireland's freedom, and it does not matter what happens to me. I did what I thought was right, and I stand by it. She was sentenced to death, but the court recommended mercy solely on only the account of her sex. Of course. The sentence was commuted to life in prison. When told of this, she said to her captors, I do wish your lot had the decency to shoot me. Constance was transferred to Mountjoy Prison and then to Aylesbury Prison in England in mm-hmm. July of 1916. Right. She was released, though, from prison in 1917, so like a year later, along with others involved in the Rising, as the government in London granted a general amnesty for those who had participated in it. It was around this time that Constance, born in the church, uh, was born into the Church of Ireland, converted to Catholicism. She... So in 1918, she was jailed again for her part in anti-conscription activities. Mm -hmm. At the 1918 general election, Constance was elected for the constituency of Dublin St. Patrick's beating her opponent, William Field, with 66% of the vote as one of 73rd Sinfine MPs. The results were called on December 28, 1918. This made her the first woman elected to the United Kingdom House of Commons. However, in line with Sinn Féin's abstentionist policy, she did not take her seat in the House. Mm-hmm. 
Constance served as the Minister of Labor from April 1919 to January 1922 in the Second Ministry and the Third Ministry. Do do do. Um, she became both the first Irish female cabinet min minister at the same time, only the second female govern government minister in Europe. Whew. She was the only female cabinet minister in Irish history until 1979 when Marie Gohan Quinn was appointed the cabinet uh, at that time. So each time she exited prison, um, time and Irish society seemed to skip forward rapidly. During one of her stays, she was even elected to parliament, making her at the time the one of the only female politicians in office anywhere in the world. In fact, the rebels under the banner of Sinn Féin had taken a majority of the parliament seats and set about establishing an Irish Republic separate from the British. The brutality, though, of British relations escalated quickly after the elections, hiring bands of ex-soldiers and mercenaries to subdue the population. The British actively hunted down the Irish Republican government. Um, Constance and her government cohorts thus spent much of their time on the run. This period showed much daring on her part. So, she installed pianos in their office so they would appear to be merely a music school. When meeting with a rosary bead factory representative on behalf of some unions, she continu continually interrupted him by informing him that keeping her there too long would bring in a military raid. 20 minutes, she said, then 10, etc. The representative caved. Once, when she was about to be raided, she fled the office with sensitive papers and a briefcase. Not knowing where to store it, she put the bag in the window of a friendly second-hand store. She gave the suitcase an outrageously high price tag and set it there <laughs> in plain sight for weeks before someone came to retrieve it. She spent her final years doing what personal good she could. She became an avid motorist and accomplished mechanic mm -hmm. due to how often her car would break down. <laughs> <laughs> the public often caught sight of a middle-aged Constance in her underwear fixing her malfunctioning car. The skill proved useful when, due to labor strike, coal became scarce in the middle of winter. She began driving the mountains and hauling back coal and distributing it to senior citizens who couldn't easily fend for themselves. Good for her. Yes. And to wrap it up very fastly, for some reason, she died in 1927 from complications related to appendicitis. Long years of hunger strikes, police brutality, and guerrilla warfare had weakened her body significantly. She was 59 years old. And that is the motherfucking Constance. <laughs> hey, Disney, that's what you should have done instead of so Seriously. Well. That was good. I enjoyed that lady yeah. or reading about her a lot. Yeah. I was like, wow, if I can be <laughs> half badass as she, then I would be good. <laughs> ah, that was good. Um, yeah, I think that's all that we have for you today. Oh, yeah. Um, hopefully uh, next week our full studio will be set up and we will be able to have a, a more professional podcast. Um yeah. Yeah. We're good. Yeah. People like us. It's fine. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, as always, you can find us online at um, absintheactivismarts.wordpress.com. Uh, I've got two books for sale. Um, Red Hats and Black Masks is actually about to be re-released by Guillotine Press. Um, and so I'll have, uh, I'll have a new link up for that sometime soon. Um, in the meantime, you can email us if you want physical copies and I will get you those. Mm -hmm. 
please buy both my books. Uh, the more pe the more people who buy my books, the uh, better chance I have for selling the sequels. Yay. Um, all proceeds from my books go back into the activist community. They go towards my mutual aid fund, and then I will give that out when people are in need. Um, we have artwork from Katie White. Um, do you know if she's still open for commissions? She hasn't said I anything. I don't know. So we have to mean. ask. Uh, we have to have our people call her people. As of right now, I think that she's still open for commissions, so feel free to give her uh, an email if you want her to draw anything for you. Um, we have music from Joshua Paul Brooks. Uh, he just posted a new song on his website, so go check that out. Um, it's a tribute to Stefan Clark, I think. Um, Oops, excuse me. <laughs> Uh, we also have our old uh, intro music, which was by Chet Osman. If you want to go, give that a listen. Um, I have short stories up, um, mostly scary stories, because I usually release them around Halloween. <laughs> uh, but there are a couple of sci-fi and stuff up there. Um, you can find us on Facebook at Absinthe Activism Arts. You can find us on Twitter at Absinthe Act Arts, but we have still never used it. Um, April 1st, I have to keep telling you. April is coming up. I know. <laughs> God. Uh, what else is there? Um, if you uh, feel like donating to uh, the podcast, we have a Patreon up. Um, it is Absinthe Activism Arts. Um, we also take Venmo, Square Cash, PayPal, all those things. If you just want to uh, make a one-time donation. Um is that everything? Sounds good to me. I need a list so I can just mark, yeah. mark off work on every that. episode. We need to work on that yeah. list. Make a list. Let's um, do it. <laughs> if that's everything, I think we're going to get out of here. Um, mm -hmm. Thank you for listening. Uh, we love you and have a great week. Yeah.